Welcome to Smiling in Hell 2.0, Life After Retirement and Then Some. I am your host, Larry Peterson, reading a few of the blogs that I posted over the last year. And uh, today we're going to read uh, Chapter 22, The Carducci Files. Uh, you know, as my uh, daughter began her first day of college back about a month or so ago, uh, how did that happen? I found myself looking back at my educational career <laughs> and the lack thereof, and at some of the misadventures that I enjoyed along the way. And that led me to this chapter 22, The Carducci File. While the ending summer heat and humidity continued to rear and roar through most of the cities and towns, and we were deluged with ads for back-to-school sales and reminders that the kids would soon be back in class, my mind and memory couldn't help but crawl reluctantly back to the days when I was an inmate in the public school system. So as most of you loyal and constant readers of Smiling in Hell know, I mean, all, both of you, I survived my uh, formative elementary and junior high years in the sprawling Cleveland suburb of Parma, Ohio. Many a school day adventure was experienced between that modest ranch house on North Avenue and my matriculationary locations of John Muir Elementary School, a big brown brick square turd of a building built around 150 years ago, and the new at the time Shiloh Junior High. I don't know if anybody else remembers them. I think Shiloh is uh, closed now. But these two schools accounted for all of the damage done to my very impressionable young mind and personality during the first eight years of my somewhat formal education. Why I call it that, I'll never know, since I never once wore a tuxedo and rarely even put on a tie. But there were more than a few memorable experiences uh, that uh, especially found their way into my life during those trying times of the early 60s that even now seem like they happened only yesterday. Kind of gives you some idea what kind of shape my memory is in. Actually, I have a great memory. It's just real short. Okay, so there's an example. There was the winter of my sixth grade when, as a school crossing guard, I had to stand at the corner of Tuxedo Avenue. And like the Gestapo in a World War II movie, I'd hold those poor pedestrian grade schoolers hostage with my Oh, so powerful little wooden handled yellow flag while I looked diligently up and down the road like uh, T.E. Lawrence watching for a brigade of camels until I was completely sure it was safe to allow these little tykes to hightail it across to the other side. Oh, yeah, my middle name was Diligent. Even in the dark days of the Cleveland winter, when us corner crossing guards began to take on the appearance of Shackleton's crew of the Endeavor, Oh, but please pass the rum. Then there was the time when, after an innocently accidental playground faux pas during recess, that I knew was going to result in my being carted off to reform school for life. Okay, see, my pals and I, Billy, Diane, Paula, Larry S., uh, Timmy, Andrea, and a few others, <coughs> were just horsing around on a cool winter day playing keep away, you know, with various and sundry belongings, like scarves, books, hats, etc. Yeah, basically being kids, when one of these maladroits snatched the monkey cap from my head and they began to toss it around. Of course, uh, being the rowdy kid I was not, I tried to retrieve said cap while in midair, 
usually to no avail. Finally, one of the gang tossed the itinerant chapeau to my friend and somewhat secret crush, since she was so cute, Diane. As I made my way in her direction, she quickly and skillfully slipped the knit cap under her sweater, knowing that no self-respecting sixth-grade boy would ever think to go spelunking that forbidden land of pre-adolescence to mine for such a treasure. Unfortunately for me, I only saw that the cap had disappeared like a rabbit in a hole. I, like Bullwinkle, and without thinking, reached in to pull that rabbit from the hat. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull the rabbit out of my hat. It was only when my hand was about six inches under the collar of her sweater that all time stopped it. And like a scene from The Matrix, every kid on the playground, and I think around the world, stood still while I removed my hand, still empty at this point, quicker than Doc Holliday drew his revolver on Johnny Ringo. Oh yeah, I'm your Huckleberry. A child's imagination is a wondrous thing and works at about 10 times the speed of sound. Mine already had me being turned into the teacher, marched to the principal, escorted from the school by the FBI, and sentenced to life in Alcatraz for involuntarily attempting to cop a feel, and only being released at age 85 for good behavior. That all happened in about 12 seconds. What really happened was that as Diane's eyes grew the size of saucers, she quickly extricated the cap from its wool jail, tossed it back at me, and ran, almost in tears, towards the school building with several of the other girls close behind. A couple of my buddies, seeing my brewing mental scene of a future selling pencils on the street corner, offered solace while subtly trying to find out if I had felt anything, which I hadn't. Well, to make a long story short, nothing happened. No FBI, no prison time, not even a scolding or sermon from a teacher or parent. I actually shored up all my courage to apologize to Diane after school, and we remained good friends. I, however, never washed that hat ever again. In fact, I think I still have it somewhere. One other such memorable and at the time terrifying event occurred while I was trying to make my way, like Hawkeye through a Sioux gauntlet, through the challenge of seventh grade. Now, there were already numerous challenges that I, not unlike an adolescent version of James Bond, faced as I traversed the juvenile obstacle course that included dealing with things like the new foreign cocktail of volcanic hormones, trying to keep up with the latest popular music playing on AM radio, battling the impossible enemy of algebra, pushing my still husky-sized physique through the physical and psychological stress of P.E., Acknowledging the embarrassing realization that I would never be a star athlete, and worst of all, the first new National Geographic-like exposure, uh, no pun intended, to the boys' locker room. Now, looking back on it, while most of us guys would have given almost anything for a quick peek inside the girls' locker room, none of us were willing or wanting to admit we were actually of the female persuasion in order to acquire such a glimpse like today. I mean, how do kids today make it through the day who think that they're, well, never mind. I just feel for their parents. Anyway, ever since the first Neanderthal kids walked from their caves to the local PS1 
there have been prehistoric youngins who thought they could tell other kids what to do, right? Whether it was getting them to carry their books, give them their lunch money, or even cry uncle like that scene with poor uh, Ralphie in the Christmas story. Yes, even I one day succumbed to that terror of having a fist the size of a Volkswagen shaken in my direction with the verbal threat of, just wait till after school. And here's what happened. It was during my seventh grade year at Shiloh Junior High, you know, shortly after the end of the Civil War, <laughs> relegated to that unfortunate group of kids who had to ride the bus to school. I was still trying to feel my way through the challenges of a new school, new kids, new teachers, new protocols, not buying an elevator pass, new unusual food items in the cafeteria, and most scariest of all, new tough kids. Now, as you might have gathered by now, I was not the Charles Atlas or Arnold Schwarzenegger of the junior high set. In fact, not being the smartest, most athletic, best looking, most talented, richest, tallest, or most popular, I had to rely on that most primeval of all skills in order to get through the day. I was funny. In most situations, I could come up with a joke, a one-liner or an impression of Jerry Lewis that would ingratiate me to most of my peers. Now, where was that skill set when I did my human claw machine impression down Diane's sweater? Huh. Anyway, sometimes, though, even a well-timed bon mot or a grin-getter is not enough to win the day. Like the day in the seventh grade while riding the bus on the way to school that I, smiling in hell, was tormented like Orpheus by Hades, a ninth grader. Let's call him Steve. So it was on a wintry day, and I was sitting on the bus, minding my own business, wearing a winter cap and scarf, when I felt my scarf being tugged from the seat behind me. I turned, and it was Steve. Yep, bigger, older, meaner, a mouth breather, Steve. Now, not being the seventh grade Stallone, I just asked him to quit it and turn back around. Of course, he immediately did his impression of the hangman and tugged again. I tried to ignore him this time to no avail, and the tugging got more aggressively tuggish. I again said, quit it, and he just laughed and said, what are you going to do about it? Ah, yeah, the classic adolescent cry of challenge. Well, despite my request to stop and the well-intentioned but weak support from my friends, this went on for most of the trip to school, and just as we were getting to the parking lot and uh, hopefully a friendly fort, Steve gave my scarf such a pull that I thought I was going to come over the back seat. Not realizing what I was doing, I turned around and, without thinking, backhanded him across the face. Not a soft tap, either. <laughs> now, this was a full-on, pretty good, mad little kid meets the Three Stooges smack. Oh, wise guy, eh? Of course. I don't know who was more surprised by this impromptu pop, him or me. He looked at me like Lurch from the Adams family, and I, not even giving him a chance to react, made a beeline to the front of the bus, out the door, and into the parking lot where, thankfully, a teacher was hovering. Not being a stitch or wanting, uh, or wanting, to, or wanting a stitch, I didn't say anything just made my way to the front door as I, without turning around, heard him bellow, After school, Peterson! After
Mr. School Peterson. The words that would crawl into my mind like a dung beetle and nest there for the entire day, made, making a nightmarish home, requiring me to make out a will and write my own eulogy. A quick segue here. Uh, there was a wonderful little movie that came out some years ago called Three O'Clock High, where a very similar scenario takes place as Buddy, the high school JD, makes a similar threat to a fellow student who spends the day trying to figure out how to extricate himself from what will surely be a superior butt whooping by the bigger, meaner, more terrifying buddy. That's how I spent the day. Knowing I wouldn't stand a chance against the more Neanderthal nature and physical makeup of Steve, I decided I would have to rely on science, strategy, and ingenuity to survive the after-school nuclear attack. In other words, uh, I wept openly. Oh, oh, I tried to enlist some reinforcement from my friends who shared the bus with me, but not being any bigger, and in fact even a little smaller than me, I knew we'd crumble like the Falklands. As mentioned, I also didn't want to take it to a teacher because I knew that, other than a warning, <laughs> they probably wouldn't do anything, and Steve would just catch me some other day probably when I was around 25 or 30, and make good on his promise of a certain pummeling. I even tried to conjure an 007 contraption out of a spring-loaded ballpoint pen. See, I figured if I, I took the spring, took it out, pulled it to a deadly tight torque, and replaced it with the pointy end pointed out, I, I could, with a deft flick of my fingers, send that inky spear shooting Swahili-like towards my intended victim. Bearing, however, that it, it might actually become injected in his brain or eye, I had to withdraw this weapon that even Q Branch would have been proud. Oh, behave, 007. So as the day went on and the minutes ticked by, I found myself in study hall across the table from my usual table and study mate, Tony C. Now, Tony C. and I had gotten to know each other because although I was a year or two behind him, I was really good in English and Tony had been, well, struggling. So his teacher had asked me to give him a hand with his assignments and not unlike Androcles removing a thorn from the lion's mighty paw, we became friends. Now, Tony was not only a few years ahead of me in class, I think he was about 28 years old. Okay, not really, but I know he shaved at least twice a day and, and towered over most of the other kids and a number of the teachers. With his leather jacket, boots, brill cream locks, and Ray Liotta demeanor, he was, to say the least, intimidating. But like I said, thanks to my helping with his studies, he'd taken a liking to me. So on that fateful day, as I was counting the hours until my funeral, Tony, sitting across from me in the lunchroom study hall, smoking a cigarette and drinking a scotch, noticed something was bothering me. It was probably my sobbing and hiding under the table that gave away my angst. And crawling out from under the table, I shared my tale of terror with Tony in hopes that he might have a good suggestion on how to handle it. You know, like what train ta left town right after school or, or how to enlist in the French Foreign Legion. Well, Tony listened intently without saying anything until I was finished and then just gently said, don't worry about it. Well, that's easy for you to say, I said, and he just repeated, don't worry about it. So he smiled and, and lit another smoke. About then the bell rang, and while memory shares that I had one more class before the final bell, for the life of me, I can't remember what it was, 
All I remember next was that I was standing in the bus line outside of the school, shaking and wondering how my mother would handle having to identify the body later that day in the gymnasium. Uh, then I saw Steve intently walking my way, kind of like Gary Cooper in High Noon. I couldn't move. I just stood there shaking as he walked up to me, pulled himself to his full height of well over five feet, and as I began to duck, said, hey, don't, don't worry about it, man. Huh? Was all I could say, looking at his shoes. Now, uh, sorry about this morning, man. Uh, we're okay. Then slowly looked up at him and glancing over his shoulder towards the front door of the school, saw leaning against the building and looking in our direction, the dark and imposing figure of Tony C. He stood there in the alcove, perfectly still, hands in his pockets, until Steve walked away to the back of the bus line. Then, without a nod or a wink, Tony backed into the shadow and, like Batman, disappeared. Well, the bus ride home and eventual disembarkation occurred without incident, and the event was never mentioned again. Tony never said anything, and I, knowing better than to spoil a good thing, never brought it up. Steve and I kept a safe distance from each other after that, never had a cross word or another pulled scarf between us, and we all eventually went our way. You know, it's been many years since that day, but I still think of it now and then, especially around the beginning of every school year. And while I don't know whatever happened to Tony C., my guardian angel, I think of him affectionately, and with a smile, I still say, quiet little, thanks, Tony. Well, this is Smiling in Hill 2.0, Life After Retirement and Then Some. I'm your host, Larry Peterson, saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Have a great day.